from the Cumberland Plateau in the University of the South, this is the Swanee Review Podcast. Darby Francis, it is a huge pleasure to have you here on the Swanee Review Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for making the trip to Swanee. And we're here today to celebrate you and your work as the recipient of the Aiken Taylor Award for Modern American Poetry. And we are just so glad that we get to have this chance to to talk to you and spend some time with you and your work and to share it with our community and with our listeners on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's quite an honor, the award. I am still flabbergasted and thrilled and just really enjoying my time here. And this is a particularly wonderful time of the year to be here. And thus far, I've just had a wonderful time meeting people, talking with people. And thank you again for having me. Well, it's entirely our pleasure. So yesterday you did a reading at St. Andrew's Sewanee, which is our, our sister's school. And you and I had talked about those early encounters with poetry mm-hmm. and how meaningful those can be. And I can't help but imagine that for however many students were there, there were probably a few that this was probably not their first, but an early encounter with poetry. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your early encounters with poetry. Was there a particular moment in your life that made you feel like, so that's what poetry is, that's what poetry can be, or that's something I want to give give part of my life to? There actually was an encounter. I'd been reading poetry for some time, and like most young people, I read uh, children's verse, but at 15, I started reading Browning and by 19, I was reading I. And around that same time, I was in a class, an English class, and it had um, modules, and we were in the poetry module. And the poet out of Louisiana, Creole poet Alvin Aubert, he invited in um, two poets who you would call a corridor poets, which were a group of extraordinary poets writing uh, in the corridor, Cass Avenue, Woodward Avenue of Detroit. And in walked Rayfield Waller and Samaj James, I believe that was her name at the time. And I had never seen poets like them. They were tall, they were black, but there was swagger, so much swagger. They were completely inside of the moment. And they read work that I'd never, I'd never heard that type of work before. I still don't quite know how to describe it. The associations were, were wild, and their reading of it was unabashed, and there was so much power in it. And that moment... I looked at them and I said, I want to be that. Now, I'm not saying I'm that, but I am saying I have my own impact when I read. 
for young people. And so I, I wasn't a high schooler, but uh, that was my first encounter with um, people who did poetry for the life. And by the time I was 24, I made the decision that poetry was going to be the way I expressed myself, the way I allowed the exposure of my interior, if you will. The phrase you use there, the exposure of my interior, and describing that encounter you had with those poets, it makes me think about my initial encounter with your work, which I think in a lot of way, when I talk to other writers and other poets who have read your work, I feel like we all have had the, we're all describing the same reaction to your work that you just described to, to those poets, that, that unabashedness, that power, that sense of interiority, of, of mapping out a life in poems, not necessarily purely autobiographical, not necessarily mm-hmm. purely in the sense of, oh, this is a speaker of this poem with an enormous amount of distance between the writer and the text, but navigating something that, as you said, that it's difficult to put into words, that is kind of ineffable. When I talk to other poets about your work, to me, they express some of the same sentiments that you expressed about those corridor poets in that early encounter. And the way that there is a way poets sort of talk reverently about the poets that, that help them find their way. Whether it's through their life as writers, whether it's draft by draft or you know book by book, or just figuring out how to be a human being. Your work is often touchstone work for a lot of the writers that I've talked to. Then in, in that case, I feel that I, I met that early goal. And it's meaningful, that's very meaningful for me too, because we're in a, a new era of poetry. I, I feel that we're in an American renaissance, actually, in poetry. And part of that is because how we think of lineage has changed. And the way I think of lineage and the way I talk about lineage, it's those who influence us, those who impact us. And those persons might be of the same era, the same uh, gender, the same cultural background, but they don't have to be. And that's the shift. Those who've told me that they're impacted by my work, they may look like me, they may not. They may be from Texas or Detroit, or they may be from Mexico. That is important to me. When I met those two corridor poets, well, I actually didn't meet them. They were standing in front of a classroom just doing what they do, just reading their work. I, at that time, still saw myself as as Texan, and, and I still do, but after almost 30 years in Detroit off and on, I see Detroit as home, but there was still a, a wobble in me then. So I thought of them as very urbane and urban poets. I didn't know what kind of poet I was, but I knew that I still was deeply influenced by the Southwest and the South because I've lived in Georgia and North Carolina and different places. So they were other than me, if you will, even though all of us identify as Black. 
but the poetry moved across that otherness. The poetry filled that gap. And I felt an immediate closeness with these two strangers. And that's the exact thing I felt when I was 15, reading Robert Browning, running out of a classroom, crying. My instructor, who saw lineage as racial, could not understand my response to the poem. He was actually angry uh, that I would feel the poem, but I did. So Browning stretches across age and era and background. The poem at its best has that kind of reach. And the poems, I think, can be stronger than we the poets are. So that reach is incredible. And those two corridor poets reached me. And again, in that moment, I wanted to reach others. And when I thought about that, I didn't think I want to reach Black others. I thought, I just want to reach people. I think my ethos around poetry and poetics was actually formed in that moment when they showed me the possibilities in language. And I can't remember the poems they read, but the feeling of those words remain in in my head. If I am impacting others to find their path, as you said, then I'm glad and grateful and and happy for that. You've raised so many interesting issues that I think that we are talking about in this moment um, when we talk about the American poem project, when we have these questions of lineage, when we have these questions of inheritance, when we have Mm -hmm. these questions of what it means to build a community. Mm -hmm. Because so many, I mean, for me, I I met you on the page long before I met you in person. And I think that is so often the encounter now is so many people, I think, feel what you describe as that wobble, that there is something in themselves that isn't quite fixed. And what I see in your work as a, as a particularity in terms of place, in terms of the resonances you see and larger symbolic meaning that emanate mm-hmm. out of your work aren't necessarily my touchstones, but what is in those poems is sort of oscillating at a frequency that I feel when I'm sitting down at the page, if that makes sense. It, it does make sense. And it, it brings to mind the poet Jack Riddle out of uh, Michigan. He writes in one of his textbooks, Approaching Literature, that that resonance is because we're all, all of us do have some if we think of the touchstones emotionally, then all poets are writing about what? We're writing about love. We're writing about grief. We're writing about desire. We're writing about loss. That is the human experience to move through those things. So whatever the particular situation the the poem may take on or, or describe, if it is discussing, say, loss in a way that we can feel the resonance of that loss, then it's going to reach you. And that's what I think some might call universality, but I just think of it as this human thread and human string, and we're all attached to it. 
So that's what I think really makes the poem important, the leaps it can make across whatever those gaps are. And it can, and it always has, but only in this era have we admitted it. So we're sitting at the table, the uh, American poetry table now, with a larger body of poets from the broadest backgrounds in the history of American letters. And everyone is speaking, so that's got to change us. Everyone is saying, no, this is my experience. I can't be spoken for. So people are able to speak for themselves. And it forces us into the position of listening. And when we listen, then we actually hear the sensibilities of the poet and we feel it. So someone of a completely different background than myself, if that poet is talking about the loss of a mother and the grief, well, I lost my mother fairly recently, and the grief still abides in me. I'm going to weep with that poem, particularly if the poem is well wrought. I am so overwhelmed to have lived long enough to see poetry in this way, like this. And I'm not saying it's easy, but it's necessary and I love the conversations around poetry. I love the American table. And there are countless leaves that can be added. And I think right now we're just negotiating adding those leaves and in the process of listening. I'm glad you talked about listening because I feel like that's, that's actually one of the first things I did with your work. When I encounter the poem on the page, I want to hear at least some of the music that the the poet who put it down on the page was hearing as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm struck through all of your books, through so many of your poems, that there's a music in them both familiar and strange. And mm-hmm. that that can be both the literal music of the of the choices you make on the page. It's often rhythmic and metrical choices that you make on the page. But there's also emotional rhythms of your poems that Again, they may not be my song, but I hear them with a kind of familiarity. Mm -hmm. And your subject matter has that same kind of familiarity. When you sit down to write a poem, what are you listening for? Or what's the first thing you hope to hear when you think a poem is taking shape? So I start mulling something over, and then the, the language begins to form in my mind. Other times... It could be as simple as looking at a photograph. I do a lot of ekphrastic work because I'm moved by images. So if I see a particular photograph, that the image moves into language in, in my head. And I like to try to keep myself open, not waiting to be inspired, but to allow myself to be unveiled enough to uh, allow a lot in. So I'm inspired all the time. So I seldom have writer's block. I think I've had it maybe two or three times since I was 19, which is the year I first started really writing and had my first little poem published in a tiny journal. 
but images, situations, and certainly landscape. Landscape really impacts me. I move through this emotional royal begins to to happen within. I was wondering if you'd read a poem. Yes. I'm going to start with um, a poem from home, if you will. My mother is from East Texas. My father uh, was from West Texas. And they're very different. Texas is about seven states in one. It's just huge. And um, this poem was written for my Aunt Tenny. And I didn't get to spend much time with her. Just a few visits that I can recall because I was very young when I spent more time with her. I remember going into her little house. It was a tiny house. And she was a big woman. Her hair was wild and free. And she sat down at this very old upright piano. And half the keys were darkened. And uh, she was with this uh, slender old man, old as she was. And he was tending to the greens that were cooking in the kitchen. And you could just see he just loved that woman. Like, you know, kind of what you need, baby kind of man, you know. And I utterly loved sitting with them. And she'd play a little bit and she'd sing a little blues and then she'd tell me a story. So I'm going to start there. Tintype. Thunderstorm in Palestine, Texas, 3 p.m. Tin roof, tin teeth, three gold, as if from a tin pan in a slow creek drawing mud, calling up catfish from the muck. And that skinny man, Aunt Tinny's man, never married, married man. He's got his head thrown back, eyes closed for his daily claim. The way she pulls the hurt right out of him, like a long splinter whose release almost feels good, real good. He cooks but doesn't eat, doesn't need anything but what he took years back, and keeps shacked in front of him. A woman, tend her own cans back there, back then, and burn trash in the backyard. You think I don't know who I am? Ten-tonguing the gap between there, listening with my hands stuck to my chest and the ring shout of my own feet, and now, tin-cutter, just like me, to hear Tinny tell it. Once you've sat on that sweat-stained couch, pot liquor spotted, love-marked cushions frayed to failing, and listened to her pound the upright's keys, some tan and half-rotted black, barely standing, and the bench barely able to hold her tin-haired self, you won't be right. She'll mess you up if you stay too long, tin man. That whale wrapping its arms around you, its legs like a weighted trap. You'll call for your mother. You'll cry like you've never cried before. Course you will, taking in what can't be taken in. Won't matter who you were. She'll give it to you anyway. Your heart rolled in her mouth, ten times the measure, over days like one long road of night, cold, Hard as hail. I loved that woman. Just a beautiful free woman. And I've been fortunate enough to have um, so many incredible models in my aunts. They're all very different, but 
they are determined to make their way through the world as themselves, a world which pressures them to be in particular molds, and they just refuse it. They, they find one way or another to be themselves, and I just love it. They're like a, a flock of lovely birds to me. What you hope for, I think what anyone hopes for in a poem is a kind of animation, is an opportunity for almost, I don't know if this is paradoxical or not, but when you talked about the ways in which the world puts pressure on people to be a certain thing, to Mm -hmm. operate in a certain role, or to be limited into a certain expectation of what that person and that body is supposed to be. And what's interesting, I think, when you have an aunt like this, Mm -hmm. you have a person like this who reconfigures that pressure and places a different kind of pressure on the world. Mm -hmm. To me, it's very similar to the kind of pressure that's required to make ordinary language into a poem. To create, to make art. I absolutely think that it takes that. Can we create art if we don't push any boundaries? if we're not at least in part expansive in one way or another, something in the life has to give for art to be created. And for each of us, that's going to be different. And for some of us, many things give. The shell is cracked all around. I don't know. It it was an old theory, the theory of the cosmic egg and we grow and we grow and we finally break free and we think we're going to find something large and we do, but then we begin to grow again and we see that there's another shell to break through. So I, I think I'm poorly describing this. It's been a long time since I've thought about it, but I do think that there has to be some kind of reconfiguration in the life itself, in the way we think in order to create. You saying that, I can't help but think of one of your lines that I think about all the time, which is, don't you see, I'm shedding my skins. Oh, yes. May I read that? Absolutely. That is another anti-pastoral and I do write quite a few anti-pastorals and I'm, I'm kind of pushing back against uh, romantic ideals of the wilderness and the wild. And, and I'm also inhabiting, if you will, some of the ideas and ideals by being something that wasn't considered when so many pastoralists were writing it. So there's a, a woman in peasant dress out, in a meadow, right? But the woman in peasant dress out in the meadow looking around and deciding she has to write something. She has something to say. And because she is the one getting her hands dirty, not an observer, because so many of the different pastors at different times, they're observers, not actually engagers with the land. So, here is a woman who turns around and she's getting her hands dirty and she says, no, I have another way of looking at this. This one is entitled Another Antipastoral. I want to put down 
what the mountain has awakened. My mouth full of grass, my curious tail. I want to stand still, but find myself moved patch by patch. There's a bleed in my throat. Words fail me here. Can you understand? I sink to my knees, tired or not. I now know the ragweed from the goldenrod and the blinding beauty of green. Don't you see? I'm shedding my skins. I am a paper hive, a wolf spider, the creeping ivy, the ache of a birch, a heifer, a doe. I have fallen from my dream of progress, the clear-cut glass, the potted and balcony tree, the lemon-waxed wood over a marbled pillar into my own nocturne, the lullabies I had forgotten. How could I know what slept inside, what would rend my fantasies to cud, and up from this belly's wet straw-strewn field, these soundings? the time I spent often on in rural places, my grandmother's farm, or traveling across the panhandle, these types of things. After I was in Detroit for so many years, that is how I saw myself. And I don't think of Detroit as a place where one finds the kind of wilderness I'm talking about the oak trees, the elms, years ago got a disease. And the the city of trees, which was Detroit, we lost just thousands of trees. And there is a wilderness that grows up from the cement. As a matter of fact, so much so that we have pheasants in Detroit. Um, and you can actually drive down these super highways and in those patches of grass uh, separating as you come around a curve or something, these patches of grass se- separating lanes, there they'll be. And it's, it's stunning in this incredibly urban concrete environment. So things rise up in Detroit and sometimes unexpectedly. But still... It is quite different than, say, living on a mountain near Asheville. You know, so we moved from Detroit, my husband and I, to Asheville, North Carolina, living on the side of a mountain about eight miles from the city. And it was life-altering. The difference was so stark. And there were so many things in that wilderness that frightened me. And I I wasn't a woman who frightened easily. But suddenly, there are these creatures to deal with and tend with. And I I started thinking about it. And the things I had forgotten from my early years started to inhabit my dreams, started to come up again. And I would simply become ecstatic sometimes on a trail, looking at rhododendrons so huge that they would cover a a rock wall. I didn't even know they could grow like that. And I felt like throwing myself into them. I'm not saying I did. I'm just saying I felt like it. (laughs) And (laughs) it brought so much back up. And that's when I first started thinking about Americans and this place called the United States. And what are we as a group? 
because how the mountain impacts me, how does the mountain impact others? I just started to wonder who would come to the mountains, why, what was the impact, and and it just grew and grew until in my mind I see America as a very wild and untamed place. And what does it mean, that wildness? What should we do with that wilderness within? And I began by trying to decipher what to do with the wilderness I found within myself. So I wasn't actually looking at the mountain saying, oh, look at that wilderness. I felt the mountain was looking into me saying, huh, look at that wilderness. And she's not even aware of it. So the awareness grew and nothing was pastoral. It was not romantic. It was sublime in its danger, in its threat, and in its beauty. Those pressures, right, the the push you talk about, whether it's the pheasant on the freeway, whether it's our attempts to sort of civilize nature, there's always this resistance to that, that, that wildness will push, push against that restraint. And then, and then it seems to me, it's a reminder of, of like you're saying that there is this, there is a wildness in us. There is a, and a, what what's interesting about that poem, and I think it's interesting in so many of your poems is, and thinking about the way this poem answers that tradition, it's not that to me, these things aren't metaphorized. They're not, or not purely metaphorized, mm-hmm. not structurally metaphorized on the, on the page as a, a way in which the world reveals itself to us. But instead, these things are embedded in, in this poem, and I think in so many of your poems, embedded in the wildness within mm-hmm. each of us. And so what's being revealed in the poem, because it sheds some of the architecture of the past, or the architecture of mm-hmm. metaphor, to say instead, not, I see a resemblance in this thing, but instead, I see this thing in me. Mm-hmm. I see this world in me. I see this strangeness, this untamed thing within who I am. Something in in the mountains, something was revealed. And, and that's interesting to me, too, because so many pastors, so many who would speak the word, give the sermon, particularly in early American history, found revelations in the mountains. And... For me, the mountains helped reveal myself to me. And as it did that, I began to wonder what it does to others. And I began to think, oh, there's so much that we silence, so much that needs examining, that needs the the kind of revelation, if you will. So a, a lot of these poems were an attempt to get under the skin And I, too, I use repetition. I come back to skin um, and discuss it in in sociological terms, political terms. What's at stake for a person inside of a particular society? So I talk about my skin, and I talk about my grandmother in, in the poem called Skinned. And I'm speaking of it a bit differently, not what I chose to 
move through and and allow to be revealed within myself. But for my grandmother, what outside pressures skinned her. And that's a different way of letting the skin go. She's not letting it because the skin is defining her. She's ostracized because of it. How do you deal with the skin when there's so much external pressure? So I think there's, well, I know that in the book, I, there's thought about that too. Would you be willing to read that poem? I would love to read that poem. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. Skinned. There are, after all, several ways to skin anything. My grandmother knew most of those ways. She had been skinned herself, so to speak, and that her skin was so often examined and found wanting. What would one want to do with it, really, despite the constant oiling which left her arms soft as anyone could possibly desire? Her hands were ruins. She never hit me with them. My grandfather took her with her hands at her sides. Laundry water, cotton bowls, horse hide, the blood of goats. She had to cook and I had to eat. She could skin a raccoon in minutes, revealing the purple flesh easy as snapping a guinea neck. She would have given anything to wake up in a new skin, though hers was delightful in the light. But what did I know? The toil took its toll, and though her face barely wrinkled, her knees and elbows darkened into the skin I wear now, roughened into the heels I scratch against a husband's calves because I don't listen. I refuse to wear shoes. I'm as country as she didn't want me to be. But I love the way she smelled, like outdoors, like new sheets, like hot grease and rifle burn, cream of wheat with coffee, front porch, corn cob. Her skin held all she did her best to scrub free, scrub so hard it liked to take the skin right off of her, which was what she wanted, to have it off on her own terms, not the eyes that demonized her, unsightly, dirty, unseemly. She saved for lace, for crinolines, for pretty gloves, and wide-brimmed hats to hide her skin. Mine is mottled, stress-blemished, but soft as hers, and I know it. Easy enough to remove. As a girl, I tried to burn it off, to find the pink I was convinced lay beneath. I'm not the first. I wore scarves she made to cover the evidence of my curiosity. I give myself over to the lotions of the day, disparage the oils she did not love but felt she needed. She'd stroke my cheek and say, good baby, 
and I'd feel good in my skin in that moment. I'd hold her tight and whisper, you are the prettiest, and she'd feel good in hers. I want to forget, but I have my mirrors, and there she is, shadowed in a sunstruck field. I like to believe she would have enjoyed that poem. She was very supportive of my writing. And eventually I'd see her in the summers. And when I'd go in the summers, she would just buy books, all kinds of books. She'd find them everywhere. And there'd be a big pile of them for me to read for the summer. She actually, I didn't realize until later, I kept one of the books for so long and it was a rhyming dictionary. And I wondered if that had an impact. She must have given that to me when I was 12, something like that. I still have it. I love that book. I can't imagine a, a world in which she wouldn't have loved this poem. As I was saying earlier, it's one of those poems that's on my, if I had a Vivi Francis, you know, greatest <laughs> hits playlist, this is absolutely <laughs> one of those poems I come back to over and over and over. And I th- I think part of that is is partly because we were talking about earlier, the kinds of affinities that the particularity of your experience with this person in your life is something that I think a lot of people have access to. But I think what's it's not just uh, the sort of biographical or autobiographical affinity I feel with the poem. It's also that the poem clarifies for me the ways in which, again, to use your word, the way the poem pushes back against that mm-hmm. affinity. It's in a, a revelatory way to say there is a spot where we meet in this poem. Mm-hmm. But there is also a way in which this is unique to me. There's going to be a way in terms of the way my skin is seen in the world mm-hmm. and the way I'm allowed to move through the world. Mm-hmm. That this poem reminds me that I, I, I'm I not going to be able to access some of this poem in some of the ways that it presents itself on the page and the experience that it categorizes for us. I'll start here. I, I was at my grandmother's house. And a man came in. I'm not sure if she had picked pecans for him or or something like this. But he referred to her as gal. And he used the word very affectionately. But my grandmother was no one's gal. And I couldn't imagine her being that even as a child or as a young woman. And so I let him know. But... That was a world where you didn't let people know. So here was this young woman and mouthy, Mm -hmm. and my grandmother stepped back. She let me say what she herself could not say. And I let him know that from now on he would refer to her as Mrs. Smith. And he looked at me like, who is this child? Why didn't you raise her properly? But she was looking at me like, I did raise her properly. So I'd like to think that, that in that moment, he was able to see me humanizing her. He was forced to see the lady that she was. 
And that's how she uh, saw herself. She was a lady, even though she was also like a carpenter. She was skinny and strong and fierce, you know. But like I said, you know, she wore crinolines and gloves. She, she was a lady at heart. And this poem, I think it, it humanizes in that here's something that happens with someone inside of this skin. And yes, we begin to think about what happens in our own skins, but it forces, I hope, um, this in, encounter with this poem, uh, one can't turn their eyes away from the cost of skin where we are in, in our particular society and in our past. And in the poem, you know, I, I note that I had, as a young girl, my own challenges in, in understanding what this skin would mean as I moved through the world. But by writing the poem, the writing of it itself pushes back. And I wanted my grandmother seen as the deeply, profoundly um, compassionate spirit that she was. There's an amplification in the poem of of the tenderness of hard labor. Mm-hmm. I don't just mean clearly. I mean the description of her hands as ruins mm-hmm. is is evidence of that. But also that it isn't easy to take care of who you are. The ways we make ourselves soft. The ways we make ourselves vulnerable. The way we yes. make ourselves comfortable require a great deal of of work. And that's evident on her part. There's that moment in the poem where I wore scarves she made to cover the evidence of my curiosity. And there's a there's at once a tenderness there, but it's also an armoring in a way of saying, of her saying, with this soft thing that I offer solace and balm to you. Yes. What I'm also saying is this is what protects who you are. And there's a way in which I think the poem does that as well. The poem is a tender labor of language that wraps her, you know, and brings her to the present moment for us in a way that is a different articulation of the same kind of work, the same kind of embodying, the same kind of deep and abiding love. And as you say, to bring someone into the present moment in Mm -hmm. a way that is maybe seen by others as brash or seen as not right and yet is an essential recognition of both your grandmother and of of the labor required for us to have this conversation about skin this conversation if i i think about it this is years and years to reach this point where we could be sitting together talking about poetry and discussing it with such extraordinary parity. These are the kinds of things that could not have happened just a short time ago. And, I mean, there are many things that couldn't have happened. That's just one. When I say to you, she was a lady, you don't blink. You believe she was a lady. I say that to say this. In the story I just told about this gentleman, he thought I was out of line, but he also thought I was right. If he never admits it, 
when he goes home and he's laying down at night and he's thinking about it, he knows that she is no one's gal, that she is not owned by him, and she is not defined by him. And he knows that. And I think that we know who we are as humans. We know that we exist and should exist in a kind of parity. We deny it, but that doesn't mean we don't know it. And a lot of my poems, I write them as if my readers, whoever they are, they, they know the truth of our humanity. The question is, will we live up to treating each other humanely? I don't know that poems have any outsized power in the world, but I think when we do sit down with them, and we sit down especially with your work, that knowing that's provided in the space of a poem is a new encounter each time, even as it reaffirms the truth of what that poem is saying to us. That it, that it is, it's not enough to have written the poem, to have it received, but it, it's, a, it's a constant reminder, I think, that mm-hmm. that parody doesn't exist because we decide it is, but it's a, we have to constantly reinforce and be reminded of the necessity of, and the, and the essential truth of that parody, which is yes, that it's, acknowledging that it, it. And, and then mm-hmm. that acknowledgement has to be persistent. Yes. Yes. And that's part of, of uh, how we grow. I believe that poetry has impact. Poetry finds its impact in different ways um, among the writers themselves and, and with the readers. And I imagine a world without poetry and how bereft would we be. And the funny thing is we go to poetry in the, during the times that are most important to us in our lives. We get married, we want poems. There's a funeral, we want a poem. There's a birthday, we want a poem. Where do you go when language, uh, informative language, the conversations every day fail you? You go to poetry. And then once you have the poem, you go right back to the world you were in. And you may say, poetry doesn't really matter. But we aren't always paying attention to when we're using it. And for me, that we use it in, in those moments of ecstasy or crises, that's all I need to know. That's enough mattering. That's impact enough. But let's think about this, because in the U.S., we can afford to not see the impact. But there are places in the world, as we speak, where poets are in hiding, where poets cannot show their work. Um, I'm thinking right now of women poets in Afghanistan. Can they say what they need to say? No, they cannot. Can they write it? Yes, but can anyone find it, publish it, allow it to do its work? No. So there's a fear of the poet and the poet's ability to force us to see the humanity in each other. Poetry can also be used in the other direction. It can be used to reinforce the inhumane. Um, And I know that. But in this moment, I think we are most fortunate 
to have so many poets, thousands of poets, who are saying, this is what I see, who are saying, see me, who are saying, I see you. It gives me chills to think about it. I wonder if we could close with a poem. We can. I think I'll end on Beast and Beauty. Would that be all right? That would be perfect. Today's my husband's birthday. And though he won't hear this today, I don't think I'm going to say happy birthday, Matthew. So I'll end uh, with a poem, Beast and Beauty. He took me like a mother, drew my head toward himself, pulled me onto his lap, wrapped his arms around me, and cooed into my hair. Softly, as if I was dreaming, and he didn't want to wake me. He sang a song that sounded like birds singing in the sycamore, then tree frogs. I wanted to leave. I stayed where I was. He wore a lovely shirt. His hair was surprisingly kimped. There was half a candle piece and a rug of quarters. Tomato soup on the stove. I thought, what a shirt. I prayed my breast would magically spill from the zipper. I wanted to feel my calloused heels on his thighs. I wanted to linger till dawn. His pared nails scratched an itch that had eluded me for years. I cried as if I were slicing onions in his kitchen. He was a good mother. He held me like a daughter, as if I was just as beautiful as he believed me to be. Thank you so much for your poems, for your time, for coming here to spend some time with us in Suwannee. I'm just so grateful for everything you do, for the attention you pay to the world and the way you manifest that attention on the pages of your luminous books. It is an honor to receive the award. It's not something I anticipated. My relationship with the South as my relationship with wilderness is often fraught. But again, inside of that, there's threat and beauty as well. And isn't that life? <laughs> isn't, isn't that what we're all dealing with in one way or another? Like the threat and beauty of life itself. Thank you for listening to the Suwannee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Suwannee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at thesuwanneereview.com. To discover what's happening at The Review, visit our website or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Suwannee Review. Until next time, this is The Suwannee Review, new since 1892.